When I came back from New York, I was really, you know, rethinking what Toronto is to me. And I think it is a very difficult place to dream and to put those dreams into action because there is so much cynicism here. I feel like there's a more of a warmth there. Um, it made me realize Toronto can be really cold. Welcome to Black Tea. My name is Melena Williams. My name is Andre Demise. If you're new to the show, thank you for tuning in. This is the show where we have the difficult and sometimes uncomfortable conversations in Canada's black communities. The way the show works is we talk about what made us happy this week, and then we switch to a topic of importance for the episode, and then at the end, we spill a little bit of tea. So let's get into our happy segment. Andre, what made you happy this week? Well, I know for the last couple weeks, I've been going into some really dark places with my happy segment, but this <laughs> actually genuinely made me happy. And uh, it's a Christmas carol that was written by Suresh Singaratnam. I hope I got the name correct. But uh, he's a, uh, a musician from the Toronto area who saw some of the things that have been happening with, you know, like white nationalism and it's okay to be white and people putting up posters and signs around the Toronto area. And so he got together with a couple of other artists mm -hmm. and created a Christmas carol that was supposed to celebrate Canada's diversity. And it's sung by uh, an amazing vocalist, Joanna Majoko. I hope I got that name correct also. I'll just let you listen to it because it made me really happy, so I hope it can make the audience happy too. Yuletide colors so orny, so bright, tinsel trees adorned with festive light. From Graham Island, these through Labrador. Merry holidays are here once more. It, it's, it's just great watching this because, you know, it's not just Joanna and, and Suresh who are singing the vocals in the video. You can see so many different people who are reciting the song and, and singing the song. And it's in like different areas, like different geographic areas of Canada, different kinds of people who are singing the song. And it just, it kind of makes me feel like a kid again. Like this is the Canada that I recognize and remember. So it was great. And also uh, Adam Savage from Mythbusters um, wrote a tweet about the song after having watched it. He said, this is such a beautiful song celebrating what makes us unique and what brings us together, it kind of feels like a vaccine against hate, is the word he used. So, Joanna, Suresh, you guys, thank you so much for putting this together. Uh, anybody listening to this podcast, if you actually want to check it out for yourself, if you go to the website nowadorned.com, N-O-W-A-D-O-R-N-E-D.com, nowadorned.com, you can listen to the song yourself, and it's royalty-free, so if you want to pass it to, let's say, your church choir or to your school, Whoever, they're putting the song out for free. Anybody can listen to it. Anybody can sing it. There's no royalties needed whatsoever. Melina, what made you happy this week? So my, my happy is negative, so that's great. Um, it <laughs> well, is, it's about time. <laughs> it's about um, a gentleman by, like, his name is Sam Whiteout. I'm going to need to interrogate the name. Is that his actual name? Yeah. Okay. First of all, your name is Whiteout, but, like, um, and you're a white man. Yeah. But your name means a race like you just you should but be this erased. guy's entire internet presence is like <laughs> sam white in like he's, just, he's infiltrating so i don't yeah i don't want to promote the article that he wrote but it kind of went viral because he wrote an article about that's actually called popularizing wokeness so there's actually so many things wrong with this analysis in yep. general um and i know that people like to poke fun like being woke and um, different kinds of like politics that are, are essentially like centering human rights. But what you're really doing is erasing people and stealing our terminology. Remember how we talked about that the first episode? Yeah. Yeah. 
So just one thing that somebody highlighted um, that he wrote in this article, which I do not encourage you to find, but the reason why this was so problematic is because it was published at the Harvard Kennedy School Journal of African American Public Policy. We are giving these people opportunities on us. So this is something that he said in the article. However, as the link between wokeness and profit becomes more clear, we will face more and more attempts to capitalize off this trend without actually being woke or doing good at all. So you are doing that capitalizing Mm -hmm. like you. And so the thing is, like, we know that you guys are going to steal all of our arguments and that you're going to take our labor. But now it's at a point where you're truly profiting. And this is the problem. You're trying to tell us our reality. We don't need it from you. I'm trying to get. So what's the happy part about this? I'm just happy he got dragged. Like, I'm just oh. going to read some of the <laughs> sh- that people said about him. Some okay. serious, some joking. Bloticious wrote on Twitter, We do not need your voice. We have our own. Take what you learned and take it to people who look like you. Mm-hmm. First of all, the term ally is way more problematic than woke because it actually, like, is about as useful as a broken condom sometimes. <laughs> so it's just like, honestly... You are supposed to be doing this work with people that look like you. So she goes on to say, infiltrate your spaces. Put your back on the line for justice. Or is that too woke for you? And another tweet that I wanted to highlight was by the editor-in-chief of Race Bader, which is an amazing publication I recommend people check out. Um, his name's Hari uh, Ziad. He's in New York. I really love Hari's work. And he tweeted something that said, I was at a panel with Sam Whiteout last year, and someone asked how he uses his privilege for good, and his answer was that he doesn't watch Tyler Perry movies anymore. This white boy boy thinks deciding black artists are problematic and withholding support is doing some work. These are your allies. So this is the problem with allyship. Just because you overheard us talking about Tyler Perry, who actually is our own, you can't tell us. And Tyler Perry. You're just trying to reinforce. He supports other black artists. Why would no? But it's also just like yeah, some of his like some of his movies we have jokes, whatever. But it's just like your black girlfriend didn't educate you properly. Yeah, Uh, this didn't really make me happy. Well, I'm gonna I'll I'll, (laughs) I'll, I'll give you a tweet that'll probably make you happy. Somebody said about the piece that he was definitely writing on the ones and the threes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that made me happy. Diversity is a buzzword, but it also represents important strides in the film and TV industry related to viewership and box office returns. But we really haven't seen that resonate in Canada, and we want to know what can be done about it. We are incredibly excited to welcome Amanda Paris. Amanda writes a weekly column for CBC Arts, hosts three CBC television series, and is the radio host of Marvin's Room on CBC Music. Over the course of her career, Amanda has worn a variety of hats, working as an educator, a researcher, an actor, and a community organizer. She is the co-founder of the award-winning alternative education organization Lost Lyrics. So obviously Amanda doesn't do anything. (laughs) Um, Thank you for making the time, Amanda. Welcome. Where do you find the time to fit all of this stuff into your schedule? Holy smokes. I mean, I think that's for all of us. I don't know how we all do it, and I think what everyone doesn't realize when they read it like that is that like you're not that accomplished every day like you you know some days you are and some days you're not and there's a lot of lazy times in between so yeah yeah you you wake up and sometimes you forget to brush your teeth and you walk out (laughs) I I don't know about that life (laughs) I can't claim to know that one (laughs) not about that life no so um, Amanda you've been writing and in front of the camera for over a decade now and I just want to know what your journey has taught you about um, what Canada understands about artists well, I think Canada is a really interesting country when it comes to artists in the like broadest sense of the term because 
we have a culture that really celebrates some artists. So we mm-hmm. really celebrate like literary artists, for example. And we have a pretty long legacy with visual artists. But that celebration doesn't translate into like finances, institutional support all the time. We have had like a public broadcaster that's been creating work for a really long time that I work for mm-hmm. um, and that has been able to create a lot of the sort of the original television shows that a lot of people use to define what Canada is. Right. Um, but that hasn't necessarily led to like a robust and full television culture or television creation culture here. You know, we are a country that is neighboring the United States that was colonized by England and France three of the biggest cultural content creating countries in the world. And I think there's been a really difficult journey in trying to carve out our space. But in the midst of it, um, there's always been creative people living here. uh, And there's always been creative people making work in every single medium that you can think of. Whether they've had the platforms to have their work celebrated in Canada is another thing. And I think something that you guys have talked about in one of your other episodes is that so many artists, no matter the type, have had to leave to get the recognition that they they deserve here before they can get it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's true of everything that I can think of, whether it's musicians or writers or filmmakers or dancers, like everything. They've mm-hmm. had to leave before it, it's recognized here. So I think, you know, we have some of the ingredients, we have some of the structures, but there's a lot missing here. Um, and it's tough. It, we're one of the biggest countries in the world. That's one yeah. of the sparse, like the least populated and we're very spread out and every part of the country is so different. So to find something that like everybody in Canada will be interested in is really, really tough. So for myself as an artist, it's been uh, one, trying to be really specific about my audience. Like I'm pretty specific Mm -hmm. when I'm creating my own work about who I'm creating for and carving out my niche and then seeing can that work travel beyond these boundaries Mm -hmm. because I feel like if I limit it to Canada, then um, sometimes it could be the kiss of death. Right, but on that leaving piece, it's so interesting because I remember uh, you told me a story about going to New York and an experience you had there. I don't know if you want to share I think that a lot of the time we're critiquing leaving. Like sometimes there's a lot of richness that we can get by leaving. Well, I think traveling in general is just like the biggest gift you can give yourself if you have that privilege. Mm. Um, I, for almost a year, was living in New York for school. So I I got a scholarship to do um, my master's research in New York with a host supervisor at NYU. But I took some of that scholarship money to do other things, (laughs) like (laughs) like explore some of my artistic goals. At the Mm -hmm. time, I really wanted to be an actor. And so I studied at the Strasbourg Institute for Theater and Film. And it was just such an incredible experience because prior to going, I had planned to become a professor. Clearly, that did not happen because Amanda (laughs) realized I cannot spend that much time in libraries when the world (laughs) is out here and waiting for me. And, you know, New York City has so much rem- romanticism around mm-hmm. it for lots of reasons, but also because a lot of it is true. Like when you're yeah. in the city, anything can happen and there's so much possibility. And a huge part of me never wanted to leave. I just felt like I could do anything. So many invitations to try things, to dabble in things, to collaborate on things happened in those few months while I was there. Um, and it helped me to understand Toronto, which I think is a huge reason oh. why you should travel. Right. Um, it made me realize Toronto can be really cold and can be mm-hmm. really uh, hard to succeed in. 
I just remember realizing that like musicians that were nowhere close to as good as the ones that I know in Toronto were getting more love in New York City than mm. they were in Toronto. And New York is supposed to be like, you know, it's the shark, it's the shark city and it's so hard dog and eat dog world. Doggy yeah. dog world. And I was like, actually, maybe Toronto yeah. is the doggy dog world. There's a, even a different way people acknowledge you in the street, something as small yeah, as that. Totally. Like there's just I feel like there's a more of a warmth there mm-hmm. and just also an a direct, honest sort of like if I don't like you, I don't like you. If I like you, I like you. <laughs> I like, like that. you know, that's and, what and, I like. And also, you know, Toronto reminds me of is kind of like uh, when you go to a dance hall, right? For the early part of the night, right up until about one a.m., mm-hmm. what's happening on the dance floor? Nothing. 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 Everyone's, Everyone's sort of posing. like standing around the yeah. corners. Yeah, everyone's just like sort of posing up on yeah, the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then around, around like twelve thirty, one o'clock, that's when people like are a little bit too lit, a little bit too drunk to <laughs> really be that self conscious. And then they start jamming right, out. Right. And the Toronto art scene and, and the film scene even is kind of like that in the sense that some people will take risks, but it takes forever to to get right. there. Yeah. And they usually have to leave the country first to find their voice. That could very much be true. I think this city is very risk averse. It's a very risk averse city. I think it's a city that prides itself on things that they shouldn't have claim to, um, like being polite and being nice and being friendly <laughs> and all these things. And when I came back from New York, I was really, you know, rethinking what Toronto is to me. And I think it is a very difficult place to dream and to put those dreams into action because there is so much cynicism here and there's so mm. much sort of like that screw face capital is like rooted in our soul. Like there's something about being a hater that's really celebrated here and being really cynical that's really celebrated here. And, you know, I just always remember like walking through the streets of New York and like, you know, passing a hot dog vendor and the hot dog vendor being so excited about his hot dogs and like repping his hot dogs so hard, being like, my hot dogs are the best hot dogs in New York and I don't even (laughs) eat meat. And I was like, wow, man, maybe I should buy one because he was just so adamant about his passion and like had no shame around it. And I feel like here we're always apologizing for being passionate or apologizing for like loving hard and like repping our stuff. And there's like a fake humble brag that's really celebrated here. So um, yeah, New York really changed me and made me want to, keep and I go back at least I try to go back at least once a year to just like remember that and like not fall into the cynical hater culture that I feel like is so there's a web of it here well speaking of being a cynical hater um, that's pretty much my entire that's my whole mood <laughs> where, it comes to, where it comes to film and television here, memoir. I'm sorry I can't help it uh, and I try not to be this way but I look at our cultural productions and this is across all medium but I think in film and television it especially stands out there's nothing I'm able to find in film and television that comes out of Canada that I feel represents me as a Canadian or, or speaks to my experience. Mm-hmm. It's intensely personal, sort of like first-person confessional type of art production, especially for newer filmmakers. Why is it that we can't find a way to express ourselves, for example, the way that uh, film in Scandinavia does mm-hmm. with Scandinoir? Like imagine what we could, we could do in like northern communities. Or the way that the UK has been able to do with their metropolitan culture. Why can't we accomplish that here? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a humongous question. I do agree with you that a lot of filmmakers, especially, and I think it's true of first-time filmmakers across the board, go to, first-time creators across the board go to what they know, which is normally their personal self. Mm-hmm. But in Canada, a lot of people don't leave that place. Like, they keep mining the personal. And there's yeah. a really great Cameron Bailey article that came out in the Globe and Mail that challenged Canadian filmmakers to go beyond their like what they know from their homes and to tell the stories of this country and tell the larger stories and be more ambitious in the scope of their sco- storytelling, uh, which I definitely agree with. 
I think there's something about what we were just talking about with the risk-averse culture that might be connected to that. It's like staying with what you know and staying in that little bubble and also thinking your little bubble is super fascinating. Yeah. That like... <laughs> and it's, I'm sorry, like, all due respect to Xavier Donlon, I don't care about your relationship with your mother. I really don't. Oh, my like, God. It doesn't speak to me at all. I, I mean, I don't know that, like it's necessarily meant to. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Because he does come from a very specific community and place that probably doesn't have too much in line with your community. I don't know. Yeah. But like, you know, I, I, I watched that movie and I appreciated it as an artistic work and I thought it was also really amazing because he, I think 19 years old when he made that film and took so many... he started many, writing at like 16. Yeah. So and he took all so many, credit due. And also took so many aesthetic risks that I don't usually see in Canadian film, which I think is also something that I'd love to see a little bit more of, like just being more experimental in how you shoot things, how you edit edit things. I remember seeing the work of Terrence Nance for the first time, who is an African-American filmmaker who kind of came up in like experimental film and now has a television show on HBO called Random Acts of Flyness, which is like breaking oh every God, I love that show. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, but also like just kind of following him and the circle of people that he's around and just being like, where's the experimental film community here, the black experimental mm-hmm. film community here in Canada? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think when resources are strapped and there's, it's so, so hard to make a film anywhere, but like super hard to make a film in Canada. It, people become less risk averse and, and you know, they have to justify their pitch to so many different people before they can ever get even close to the funds to even start thinking about it. And I think in each of those pitches, something happens that waters it down, that makes you get safer with your ideas and safer with your stuff. It's a really large question. I think it's a good question that more people should should think about when they're creating their work. I'm most interested in not just Canadian film, but Canadian film being created by people who we rarely get to see on screen. Mm-hmm. So having them create mm-hmm. it, not just be in front of the camera, but behind it. And I think for the communities that we have yet to see, I'm going to be okay with them being a little personal for a little while because we have yet to even see those personal stories. And True. then mm-hmm. I want to see us like step out even farther as well. Speaking to your point about how difficult it is to make a film institutionally here, I mean, you're you're also deeply involved with uh, with music, and you can probably see that there's a, a for example, um, you can see the difference. For example, um, a family friend of mine uh, used to work with the uh, Toronto Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. and now does work with uh, a few different urban uh, music projects. And what he told me was that the amount of money that the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, for example, gets, not just you know from its own donors, but also institutional support from different levels of government. Mm-hmm. That amount of money they get is about 10 times the amount of money that all urban productions in Canada get combined, like all together. He said, like, it's just stratospherically different in terms of how much support they get. Film is even more expensive to produce and create. Mm -hmm. So we we don't get anything remotely approaching personal stories, much less great fiction. We don't get to have those stories. Mm -hmm. And then the National Film Board... When it uh, releases its results every year, it breaks down films according to a gender analysis. It talks about how many films were produced, directed, written by women. But there's no further analysis beyond that. Nothing about LGBT productions, people of color, etc. How do you fix the fact that we don't have the type of institutional support in film that goes beyond just a simple gender analysis? How do we fix that so that different communities of color um, and different communities as far as uh, the LGBT community goes... How do we? How can we tell their stories too? I think there's so many uh, factors to this question. One is the fact that like the filmmaking system in Canada is so rooted in government-connected institutions, like mm. state institutions, which is not mm. necessarily the case in like the United States, right. for example, where they have much many more private systems and 
like there's just so many more avenues to go to to get the money to make your project. Mm-hmm. I'm not dogging the fact that we have grants. That's really amazing, and a lot of American filmmakers are like, man, you guys are so lucky that you have this access. But there was this another actually randomly Cameron Bailey article that he wrote years ago, like before he was Cameron Bailey of TIFF, when he was just Cameron Bailey film mm-hmm. critic, um, that I read. I think it came out in '93 where he said, when you have to keep applying to state institutions for your stories, you, inevitably the state starts to shape the kind of stories that come out about the country that, so you know, that, is, that it's invested in. And so I wonder about like how much you know, places like the NFB, like the CBC, uh, like the CFC, the Canadian Film Center as well too, uh, how much you know, relying on these sort of institutions has shaped the type of stories that we're making. Um, You know, we live in a time where it's more accessible to make a film than ever before, even though it's still super expensive. There's like access to technologies and access to platforms that we've never had before. And so I'm excited for people to still continue to advocate and push these institutions to change, but also to like maybe sometimes skip the institutions Mm -hmm. and to do things a little bit differently. I think it's really important to challenge all of these spaces to uh, think about diversity beyond gender representation, to Mm -hmm. think about it in a deeper way, to really critically uh, look at even who are the people making the decisions around the grants, who are the people that are uh, choosing which projects to support and what not to support, because that's really critical and important. I think about... Charles Officer's film Unarmed Verses and how important he said it was that he was working with people at the NFB who got the story, who Mm. understood it. Um, And that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't like a black woman there who was supporting. He he said in all the talkbacks that like it was so important that she was the representative that was hearing the story at the NFB and that um, she understood and got it. And so he didn't have to change it in a certain way to tell the story. And so I think it's really important to think about who's in these spaces how critical and willing to experiment they are as well. So I think it's like a multi-pronged issue, you know, as with yeah. every big issue, there's like not one way to solve any of this. Right. It's like the creators themselves have to be willing to be brave, courageous, and experimental. The institutions have to be willing to critically think about who it is that works within their institutions and what questions they're asking and what frame that they're they're looking and lens they're using to look at all of this. Um, and then all of us that are accessing and trying to utilize those institutions continue to like put our feet on their neck and like not and not lift it until they start changing and transforming the ways that they um, the ways that they do their work. Part of why with my career, like I think it's important to be within the CBC and to work in the building. But I also think it's really important to continue to do stuff outside of the building as well, too, and to continue to like create work, because I don't think that we should ever put all of our eggs in one basket. Okay, what do, you, what do you think of the fact that, you know, it, it doesn't matter what channel you turn to in Canadian media, when you see Canadian fictional productions, both in TV and film, it's still incredibly white. It's not just white, it's like we're rehashing the same, like we're going back to the same sources, almost cannibalizing the same stories to refresh it for a new audience mm-hmm. rather than trying to find new stories. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? It is very frustrating. I think that Canadian audiences can also be really frustrating. So I think it's not just like the people in power. I think Mm -hmm. it's also the people that are still watching TV, Mm. um, Mm. which, you know, often are much older and do skew older, rural, like just those gender, like those populations. There's a reason why Murdoch is in season like 14 because it's a huge success with this population. Like it's a human heartland is a humongous success. Um, and these stories, which may not reflect me or you, are still hugely successful with these audiences. And mm-hmm. so I think it's a it's a tough question. It's like, one, I want the people in power to take more risks, but two, I also want the audiences to take more risks in mm-hmm. what they're watching as well, too, and to think about 
what they can do. I think, you know, um, you talked about cannibalizing, and before this we mentioned N with an E, the new N series. I think what they're doing is kind of interesting because they've changed the original story, and so they've, like, added black characters into a story mm-hmm. that never had black people before and, like, attempted to interrogate what's going on in Canada. So if you're going to go back and retell the story, retell it in a different way, knowing what we know now. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, that's an interesting possibility for, like, how you retell these stories. But yeah, I think it's a very frustrating as somebody who's like super interested in scripted content to like look at the landscape and and to and it's hard not to feel like uh, yeah. is there any possibility? Um, and I also wish that we could give shows a longer time to like do well. Mm-hmm. You know, like I do, I hate when the shows that are trying to do something a little different get canceled after one season just because they didn't find their audience that quickly. Mm-hmm. It's a very tough world to make a TV show in. Okay, so, um, you know, we've talked about representation and we know that representation does matter, but it can't stand alone. So I kind of want to go back to talk about the storytelling in your work and what voices you've been amplifying in your career. So, I mean, I think I'm really lucky that I came into this job not out of journalism school, but out of like ten, a decade of community work mm-hmm. and um, coming out of a, a space of like trying to advocate and push for things and create new ways of learning and looking at the world and like meeting all these incredible young people and traveling the way that I did, which wasn't traveling as a tourist, but like traveling to meet other community workers and artists and creatives. And so I came into this current position at the CBC with like a lot of perspective and was like, this is who I am. And this is why I think this is important. And this is the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. Not like, hey, help to shape and mold me. But like, this is who I am. And if you guys accept it, then we can work together. Came in like already a grown ass woman, (laughs) (laughs) ready to like define what it is that I'm interested in. And I was lucky enough to work with people that are like excited about that and, and were encouraging of that. So I've been able to utilize my platform to help create space for all the artists that I already knew were dope and amazing and creative and cool and I didn't understand why they weren't getting coverage to meet people who are um, pushing the boundaries even farther and uh, to tell stories that we all have been talking about in my bubbles but hasn't had the space to be talked about on a larger platform. So that's like how I see what I've been able to do and that's what makes me the most excited about my job and the jobs that I'm doing, whether it's like trying to find as many or like with Marvin's room it's like yo I what we, t- we were talking about earlier Canada um loves classical music it's a country of classic and rock music i want to convert canada into an r&b loving yeah. you know country like yeah. I, the fact that i get the privilege of hosting like the only national r&b radio show is like also a humongous responsibility so i'm constantly searching trying to find like different talent that hasn't been played on the cbc before push them and then send them to other hosts you should be playing this. They are cool. This. Have you heard about this particular artist? And then with my column, some weeks are more inspired than others. <laughs> um, it's a weekly column, so it's tough. But when I have the opportunity to open up a conversation that I know has been happening in different communities but hasn't happened on this national level, then I want to do that as well too, uh, whether it's about the lack of recognition for black women in film, which was like a really important article for me to write. It's just a listicle, really simple. But one of the things that makes me really passionate is like making sure that we're Googleable. Yes. Like, you know what I mean? Like yep. making sure you can find our work online. So simple, but so, so simple, but so important. And so I was like, I want all these women who some of whom don't even have Wikipedia pages, but have been creating films for however long to be found on Google. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, what can I do? I can like write this article and then now maybe this will pop up if someone searches their name and also now you can know their name to search it as well too so like little things like that well 
You said that the professor life was not the life for you, but you certainly came in and schooled yeah. us today. Oh my so God. I'm sick of saying yes. I've Thank- said yes like a hundred. <laughs> I've just been sitting here nodding my yes. head up and down like a bobblehead. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in and, uh, and sharing that with us Thank today. Thank you guys for having me on Black Tea. Now it's time for the tea. Andre, what's your tea this week? This is something that I've had on my heart for a little while, and it concerns the word hotep, which we kind of flicked to in the first episode and talked about a little bit, but I want to go a little bit more in depth here. So since my daughters were born, I've had people ask if they can come over and visit or if we can come and visit them and so on. And I'm, I'm very happy to, you know, introduce friends and family to my daughters, except the ones who don't vaccinate their children. If you don't, if you don't vaccinate your children or you don't get vaccinations yourself, I'm sorry, but we just, we can't hang like that. Like I, I'm concerned about my daughter's health that way. What really worries me though, is where people are coming from on the anti-vaccination spectrum. See, it's one thing if there was something you could point to, to show that vaccinations have materially affected the health of black people, then I would be interested to know more. But what I'm seeing is people saying that, well, you know, do you trust what these white people are putting in the vaccines and injecting it into your children and that they're trying to, like, eradicate us or trying to, like, you know, make us sterile? And it's like these these arguments are coming from a place of, I don't want to just say complete ignorance. It's almost like they're doing the work of the oppressor for them. And it's, it's not just anti-vaccination. There's a bunch of other stuff that mm. falls into this. Like, for example, when people say that if you're pro-LGBT in the black community, that you're advocating for the eradication of black people because what the white man wants oh, is for God. us to not reproduce. And it's like and the, the place that this comes from, not just from a mental place, but from like an historical and a spiritual place is, is people who don't know enough about their own history trying to fill in the blanks with mythology. And I have a huge problem with that. Like the people that I learn black history from, like it doesn't just come from books. It's also like I have, I, I think, a very good support network of people where if I'm, let's say, writing about black history or need to study more about African history, like, you know, a good friend of mine is a uh, PhD student. You know, another friend of mine teaches at the University of the West Indies or I have another person who's actually, you know, a, a professor in Canada. There are various people around me where if I feel like I have sort of blank spots in my historical analysis, I can rely on them to help fill that in. A lot of people don't have that privilege, and what they turn to is YouTube. Uh, Looking up people who are, quote-unquote, African philosophers or African history experts, and they'll bring up, say, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, who also believes that homosexuality was introduced by Europeans to weaken the black man. Or they'll turn to people who believe that we were, you know, sons and daughters of kings and queens in Egypt when most of us didn't come from Egypt. We came from West Africa, i.e. Nigeria and Ghana and Senegal, etc. And it's like, I understand the allure of believing that you're descended from kings and queens. I I get where that comes from. And I think to some extent, I internalized that when I was younger. But then at some point, you have to deal with actual reality and facts. And if you're saying things that are making you sound a lot like the people who are oppressing you, coming down on your own community and you're advocating for harm to come to your own community because of a mythology that you found on YouTube, then you really got to check yourself. So, you know, to pull all this together... I don't just have a problem with this sort of like black mythology that we call hotep culture. I don't just have a problem with it because it's harmful to the people around me. I have a problem with it because it's harmful to the people who practice it. It's Mm -hmm. basically keeping you in a a place of ignorance, of non-knowledge of self, because you're too lazy to actually crack open a book and read about your own history. Talk to people who have had conversations with griots in, in West and Central Africa attend a university lecture, like get to know your culture. they're actually interested in this or sometimes they're just like, I just want to hear this 
this stuff on YouTube. No, I think it's I think to some extent it's almost like this um, this alt right culture. Mm. You know, where where you, you know find like, somebody that you think you can relate to, but it's dangerous. Yeah, like disaffected white kids will turn to alt right culture because right. they they feel so like left out and shut out of their own. You know, uh, uh, you know whether it's they can't find a job or they can't find a relationship or whatever. So they turn to somebody who just gives them easy answers and an easy way out. Like, no, you're okay to feel like this because all these people are taking something from you. And I think that to some extent, black folks do the same thing as they turn to the easy answers to fill in the gaps in their knowledge or to fill an emotional void to make them feel empowered. So rather than understanding black history, they turn to black mythology and to some sense, like a black kind of supremacy. Like, no, you're right to feel this way because you're descended from kings and queens. Well, there's nothing wrong with living with like maybe that's a coping mechanism too, right? Living with the reality. Yeah. And you are absolutely right. I think that there is a coping mechanism, but I would rather live with the harsh realities and make something out of that Mm. than turn to fiction and then turn my fiction into somebody else's reality because it's still oppression. Like if you're arguing that homosexuality was introduced by Europeans, which by the way, you don't even have to go as far back as your ancestors. Talk to your grandpappy or your grandmammy and there was some stuff that they were doing on the lowdown they wouldn't tell nobody else about. But the sexual and gender understandings of our own ancestors from West Africa in terms of different cultures, it looks a lot different than what we think that sexuality is supposed to look like now. Like this idea of, you know, two genders, that was mostly a European invention. The idea that sexuality exists as a binary, that's mostly European invention. There was a spectrum Spectrum. that we embraced in our own cultures too. So all I'm saying is open a book, get to know yourself, get to know your, your people, get to know your own history. Before you try to inflict mythology on the rest of us, and please, for God's sake, vaccinate your kids because you can't come visit me until you do. Malena, what's your tea for this week? So my tea is, um, it's actually connected to our guest because I wrote an article in February for Flair about the concept of ride or die, and I um, analyzed Amanda's play called The Other Side of the Game. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk about it since we had her on the show. And my article was really critical of this whole, like, I guess just the breaking open the concept of ride or die and the fact that like women, specifically black women, are praised and congratulated for like going through hardships in relationships. And I just don't feel like that's what love is. Like I don't feel like love should come from a place of suffering. I understand relationships are really complicated, mm-hmm. but I, I don't understand why we still have this like outdated concept of ride or die. I, I think it's so corny to quote myself. But in this paragraph where I'm talking about an unfair burden on black women about the pressure to attain and maintain black love. So when these relationships fail due to a variety of reasons, we're the ones who experience the disappointment and shame. Like, I can't count how many people who have tried to tell me that my life is hard because of a relationship hasn't worked. And I'm like, my life actually got better. Like, I love my life. (laughs) because I'm not going to choose a dude who's not going to put me first. Like, I need to put myself first. Like, that's what love is to me. I'm not saying it's not hard out here for black women, but I've I've heard not from black women themselves, from men of color, black men, white men, like, oh my God, it's just, I know how hard it is to be a black woman. I'm like, what? Well, no, you don't. (laughs) But like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Because it's just like, we are allowed to like expect love and affection we're allowed to expect what we give like we're allowed to have standards and even if you look at the way that um beyonce and jay-z promoted and like performed lemonade and 444 Mm -hmm. i understand that they're like supposedly like the pinnacle because they have all this money they're very famous they're incredibly talented but really beyonce wants us to forgive him and a lot of us were like get out of here with that 
um, I feel like the Lemonade was a work of art and I loved her vulnerability, but I only liked the angry half of the album because mm. I really related to it. And those, I felt like those songs were beautiful and she was really talking about like the things we go through in relationships. And when she got to the point in the album at the end, which was the love part, mm-hmm. it's like, I don't know if like she chose herself and her family or if she chose him first. I don't know that, but I don't, I don't have kids. I don't have a family. I'm not Beyonce, but like, I think we do always have to face these fundamental choices and the burden's always on us. Well, just to, I guess, put things into a more topical focus, what do you think about, say, uh, Joel Santana and... Camilla? Camilla. Um, you know, he proposes to her when he's staring down the barrel of a 10-year bid for weapons yeah. charges. So, I mean, he has a weapons charge because, as we all found out on Twitter, he had a loaded gun at the airport, I believe it was in New Jersey. Um, and he, he actually said um, in Love & Hip Hop that he ended up finding about finding out about those charges at the same time or finding out that they were looking for him, mm. actually, because he left the airport. He didn't know that he had a load of gum he, because he was in like the middle of an opioid addiction. So I think that's a separate piece. Um, like and, he was li- literally so yeah, high he that said, he forgot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he actually, when he was on house arrest, he wasn't allowed to go home because they weren't married. So who's that, like, who knows why they're getting married right now? Just, it was really, I mean, devastating to me to see that people couldn't just be happy for them in that moment. Like, how is it that we were happy when Offset proposed to Cardi, even though they were already married, we found out. Mm. Um, but we can't be excited for like, why can't Jewels and Cambella have this one moment of joy? We should actually be celebrating them. Like, Cardi and Offset had a number one album when he proposed and we all cared. Yeah. But, you know, we've seen these two people struggle. They're actually being open about it. And like, if you watch Love and Hip Hop... You've seen like, the ups and downs of their relationship. And like for me, I've been a Jules fan forever, right? So like it's painful for me to judge, like, um, but that's her choice, right? And so a lot, there's like two sides of it. Some people are being like, okay, well, he's going to jail. This is when he's going to marry you. And there's like the shaming behind that. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like it's like, yeah, but look at the burden that she has. Like we're still giving her the burden, even if we're trying to critique him. How well, are we like, still yeah. critiquing her like, for accepting her a proposal? Saying, yeah, how, how did you accept this? Did she propose to herself? Yeah. Did she, yeah. like, it, and so it's just like that. women, we're still, like, eating a man's mistakes. I think that's a really painful like, example. Like, sis, what is wrong with yeah, you? I think Why that, would you but, let him do this? But I think that's a really painful example, too, right? Yeah. Because it's just like, and I think a lot of us are projecting when we critique other people's relationships. So it is more uncomfortable for me to talk about Camilla and Jules than Beyonce and Jay-Z. Because they're good right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, people are so vicious on, like, and I know I love Twitter, obviously. Like, there's many things to love about it. But there was a Bossip article. I don't have it up right now. But people were using Jewel's and Cambella's engagement to make fun of how Chrissy and Jim Jones didn't get married. And it's like, why are we making these crazy connections? I just really wonder what it would look like if men, I mean, because I'm speaking, like, and it's a really, really narrow, like, um, heterosexual cisgender relationship dynamic we're talking about. So in these kinds of relationships, what if it was in the reverse? What if men got congratulated for making all these sacrifices for us? Because mm. it's not as if we're not dealing with things emotionally and yeah. things are just happening to them. So it's just like, I don't know if the answer is if we all kind of like ride or die for each other. I don't know if that works. It obviously looks like it's more of a model of love. But, like, we're always getting unfairly punished. but And also, like, hearing rewards for staying or enduring. And I just, I don't like that hardship piece. 
Thank you so much for listening. Shout out to the Frequency Network for having us and our sister shows. Thank you so much to our producer, Ryan Clark. And to our music producer, Black Orchid. You can follow me on Twitter at Milena Williams and our guest, Amanda Paris, at Amanda Paris. And you can catch me on Twitter at Andre Demise. You can also listen to the show on the FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like us, don't forget to rate the show on iTunes with five stars or leave us a review if you want. And thank you very much for the reviews that we've already gotten. I can see some of the written reviews are coming in. And please, if you like the show, support us with more than written reviews. They're so good. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.